I'm going to uh, intersperse a, a series on Satan here while we're studying the book of Romans. So next week we will be back in Romans chapter 1. But every, every five weeks or so, every four or five weeks, I want to uh, teach you guys a little bit about Satan. And uh, so this morning we will do the first one of those messages. So pray with me just for a second here. And then, um, then I want to tell you a little bit about what, what I've been learning. Almighty God. God of righteousness and God of justice, God of almighty power, God of mercy and grace. We praise you and we worship you. Oh Lord, we, we each one, we are sinners, Lord. We're people who sin with our mouths and sin with our minds and sin with our hands and Oh God, if we if we had no Savior, we would be the most pathetic of all people. But we thank you for the Son who came and preached and died and rose. We praise you for him. And in his name we pray. Amen. You know, when I lived in, in Thailand, in, in Cambodia, we very, very often slept under mosquito nets. You know why? <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't want to get malaria or, or dengue fever. We knew that if we didn't sleep under a mosquito net, um, the odds or the, the, the chance of one of us ending up having malaria or dengue fever were very high. Some people eat organic vegetables for similar kinds of reasons, don't they? You, you might be a person who, who buys and cooks organic vegetables or organic meat. Why? My, my, my guess is, is that you believe you're, you're, you're making a decision to spend a little bit more money on your food because you've calculated a risk involved in eating non-organic kind of foods. And, and some people have kind of looked at that scene and decided it makes sense for me to, to eat organic food. It'll, it'll be more safe for me and my family to do that. When, when risks are made known to people, when risks are made known to you, you usually modify your life so that you might reduce harms. You reduce harms, you want to reduce risks. And so in all kinds of situations and scenarios every day and every year, you are evaluating risks and you've made decisions in your life that have to do with the degree of risk you're comfortable with and not comfortable with. And, and we choose to do things like use seat belts or, or eat certain kinds of foods or abstain from certain things because we know and we understand that there is a threat unless we make that choice. And I think you know, but I'll ask, do you know that the Lord taught men to know that they have an enemy? And I think most of you would say, yes, we know. The Lord has taught us that we have an enemy. And I think most of you believe that there is an enemy to Christians, at least in theory. I, th I think most Christians theoretically believe that they have an enemy whose name is Satan. But I'm curious, and this will get down into the, the meat of why I want to raise this subject. I'm curious if you believe in this enemy in reality, and if you have modified your life, and if you make choices that are meant to minimize your harms and your losses. Does your knowledge and your belief of Satan impact any of your assessment of Christian risk? And do you make decisions 
for your spiritual life than have anything to do with the reality of Satan. Do you know really who this enemy is and what actually this enemy does to cause harms? What does this enemy do? What is the object of his plotting? I'm, I'm hoping that as we take some time and, and study him and, and study his attitudes and his works that it, it might be turned into actions in your life that would minimize harms and losses in your life. I think it's important for us to to know him and to know what he does. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11 with me for a moment here. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. And as you read this, ponder on what, what Paul is uh, reminding us of here. He says, we're kind of picking up in the middle of a thought, and, and I'll, I'll flesh it out a little bit in a moment. But he says, now whom you forgive anything, whoever you forgive... I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one, that one person he's speaking about. I have forgiven him for your sakes. I have forgiven him for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now look at verse 11. Lest Satan should take advantage of us. And then he says, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So this is this is an introductory passage into this subject for you this morning. The word devices here, he, he says we are not ignorant of his devices. This word could have been translated intellect. We are not ignorant of his intellect. It could have said, we are not ignorant of his purpose. We are not ignorant of his affections. These are words that we could use for this word devices from the original language. So that gives you a a little idea of the scope of the the potential meaning of what this devices is. It's not speaking of uh, of his iPhone or his iPad. It's not that kind of a device. It's actually speaking about the the affections and the intellect and the purpose of Satan. So Paul said that he forgives any that the Corinthian Christians forgive for their sake in the presence of Christ, lest Satan take advantage. We are not ignorant of his purpose. We are not ignorant of his intellect. We are not ignorant of Satan's affections. So do you know what Paul's talking about here? Do you know what he's talking about here? Or are you ignorant of Satan's devices? This kind of challenged me here, honestly. And it it gets me pondering, is, is my knowledge and is your knowledge of the enemy and his devices, is it as clear to you as Paul assumed it was to the Corinthians. You see, what he taught them was really just reminding them, he says, I forgive them in the presence of Christ. I've I've forgiven him. Lest Satan should take advantage. I've done it because if I don't, Satan would take advantage. We're not ignorant of the things he does. Are, are, are you as non-ignorant as the Corinthians? Or are you maybe a little bit more ignorant? Because maybe you're not too sure what it is that Paul's talking about here. So he assumes that the Corinthians know exactly what he's talking about. 
And so Paul is actually chosen to offer this forgiveness. He has chosen to make this decision because of his awareness of Satan. And he reminds them, you guys know this too. You, you guys aren't ignorant of this either. And so he, 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 he has a pattern in his life. Paul takes this action in his life. He does this and, and mentions this to them. He says, I forgive. I'm forgiving him. I expect you too to forgive because we aren't ignorant of what Satan's about. We would all agree, I believe all of us would agree that people should change their behavior when they're aware of how stupid it is to not change your behavior. We also know that sometimes people kind of get stuck in their ruts. Some people are, are, are so enslaved by some behaviors, even though they know they're living in a stupid way, they won't change their life. This happens to a lot of people. There are a lot of different kinds of addictions that we could put our finger on here. But we would all agree that people should change their behavior when they are aware of a high degree of possibility or when they are aware, when we are aware that there's a high probability that we might become a victim. So the enemy of God, he's sometimes called the adversary. We'll look at some more of his names here in a moment. The enemy of God, he knows God's people. He knows mankind. How long has he known Mankind. How long has Satan known mankind? Since we created it. Yeah, so is that 100 years? How long has Satan been examining and watching and listening mankind? Maybe 1,000 years? 2,000 years. So it, it would be fair for us to say that, that Satan's knowledge of what's going on in your heart What's going on in your minds is profoundly, maybe even more smart than your own knowledge of your own heart. He's seen what men do. He's seen what attracts them. He's seen what offends them. He's seen what motivates them. He's seen it over and over and over and over again. He studies you. He doesn't even have, he doesn't have to be able to read your mind, does he? And he can't read your mind. He doesn't need to read your mind. Why? He just knows. Now, I'm I used to love fishing. I used to fish a lot when I was young. I haven't been fishing in years, but there's there's something I know about fishing still. Depending on the the kind of fish you want to catch, you you put a certain kind of bait or a certain kind of lure in the water or on the water. You make your bait or your lure or your fly behave in a certain way. And the fish, if he's there, cannot help but bite the bait. They just can't help it. Why do fishermen know that? They learned it. Fishermen know the fish. Fishermen know what salmon do. They know what striped bass do. They know what trout do. And so they, the fisherman plays on what they know that fish is going to do. And then they can hook it and put it in the net and take it home and eat it. Now, a, a great fisherman has known fish for, what, 50 years? 40 years? How long has Satan been studying you, my fishy Christian friends? He knows you. And you're like a fish. He knows your habits. He knows your weaknesses. He knows what makes you angry and fearful. You know, Satan is cruel. He's cruel. He's murderous. We know he's deceitful. We know he's intent on harming the people of God. And he usually does this in a way where the person who has been tricked or taken advantage of doesn't even know that they have been duped until it's too late. He usually does it in a way that you've kind of, you've been doing what you want to do. You've been acting for your own well-being. You've been acting for your own desires. And, and before you realize it, there's a trap that has been 
sprung. And it's because he knows men's weaknesses. He studied their weaknesses. You remember the city of Sardis when we were studying the book of Revelation? The city of Sardis had a fortress. One of those seven churches had a fortress in the middle of their, 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 their town center, a very, very wealthy city. And the fortress was on top of a really high, rocky thing there in, in the middle of their city. And is one of the most solid, impenetrable fortresses in Asia for century after century. Depending on who conquered it, once you had it, you could keep it for hundreds of years. It was so secure. But as you guys may or may not recall, one of the Sardinians or a Lydian soldier who was guarding his fortress while they were surrounded by the armies of, of Cyrus, one of the soldiers dropped a helmet when he was up there. And one of the bad guys who was encamped outside down below heard it and see the little helmet go down the wall and he watched that guy. He watched him scale a rock to go down and, and get his helmet. What the guy getting his helmet didn't know is that the bad guy watched him. The guy getting his helmet showed the way in. That night, that man who saw the guy drop the helmet, he was, he was acting on something that that guy up there didn't know. Cyrus said, whoever finds a way in, I will make you a rich man. If you find a way in, I will reward you. That man saw the helmet fall. He went in that night, was able to get his way in. He was able to show other men how to get in, and they lost the city that night. And the phrase, like a thief in the night, comes from that city being lost in the night. It was an impenetrable city. But by study, the enemy of that city saw a way in. And something that all of those people inside, everybody inside knew that no one can get us. We're safe and we're secure in here. But through an act of providence, the city was lost in a night. And I'm curious, is there an enemy? Is there an enemy who would take your city if he found a way in? I, I was reading the book... Uh, Holy War last year by by Bunyan, John Bunyan. And the, the main theme of the book is that the man's soul is a city. Holy War is the work of, of protecting the city of man's soul. It's actually a great book. It's kind of hard reading, but it's a very, very good book. Is there an enemy? Who would take your city if you found a way in? Is there an enemy who would rob your treasure if he found you had accidentally left the door open? And have you observed his devices and have you made preparations to be defended against him? This is our question as we think about who Satan is and what Satan does. We'll look at 2 Corinthians again in a moment here. He has two main names, Satan and the devil. The word Satan is a Hebrew word, so that's an Old Testament word. And in Greek, the New Testament language, we could say Satanas, or we could say the other word, Diabolos. You guys know the word Diabolos. That's another word for Satan. We've also read the name Beelzebub in the New Testament, which means um, is actually the name of another uh, people's devil, Beelzebub. He's sometimes called the ruler of this world. You, you've heard to him referred that way. He's sometimes known as the prince of the power of the air. You've heard that name as well. Usually, or very often, his, his name is given to you as a description of him, like those last three words. I read to you. So Satan is actually a name. When you see it in the Old Testament, it says the Satan. Usually has the word the in front of it. The Satan. But we know him usually by these, they're like adjectives, if I'm not mistaken. Prince of the power of the air. It's a descriptive uh, word for his name. 
find the word Satan 24 times in the Old Testament. We find him called the tempter in the New Testament. See, that's a word which is a description word. He's a tempter. We see the word enemy. He's called the enemy in the New Testament. He's called the evil one in the New Testament. Belial or Belial. Belial is another name. Adversary. Deceiver. Dragon. Father of lies. Murderer. Sinner. The majority of passages in the scripture, he's called Satan or devil, but you guys recognize probably each one of these terms here that we just read, that these are other descriptions of his person, of his name. We, we know that this person, Satan, and I use person because he, he has the personality of a person. He's, he's not a man. He's a, like an angelic creature. But we, we see him in Scripture interacting on earth and we see him interacting in heaven. We, we see him in both places in the Scriptures. We see him able to interact in the realm of God and in the realm of God's people. We can see him in the visible world and we know him and, and have read about him in the invisible world as well. I'm going to give you uh, two passages that I believe you're, you're familiar with, both of these, just to show you his interaction on earth in a couple of different places here. Genesis 3.1 is maybe one of the most famous ones. Genesis 3.1 is one of his better known appearances. It says the serpent was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? We can make a number of observations from this appearance, which we won't really do at this point in time. We'll just make a couple of really brief observations. He can take a physical appearance and he can speak. We would understand that he actually took possession of the serpent here in Genesis and used the body of the serpent so that he could take a physical form and, and cause the serpent to be able to speak to Eve. So he can take a physical appearance and he can speak. And as you know, and, and the, the biggest thing we want to remember just kind of in this cursory um, look at him is his words are designed to be both winsome and yet cause the person listening to him to question God's words. He's very, very clever at speaking in a way to be winsome and smooth and to cause you to think that he is actually speaking God's words. Okay? He's not scary looking. He actually sounds winsome. And his tricks cost those who are deceived by them. That is, when he speaks, those who are deceived by his words pay dearly. When you have been deceived by the deceiver, it will cost you Greatly, And another thing we learn there in Genesis, I wanted to make sure I remember to say this. Those who are deceived by him can be helped when they hear and they trust in the Lord. You, you recall when Adam and Eve were confronted and corrected, they are actually helped by God. But that doesn't mean that the fact that they were deceived didn't cost them drastically and dreadfully. One more passage we'll look at just briefly. This time we'll look at some more in the weeks to come, but I want to look at just one more with you here in 1 Chronicles 21. You might not know this one quite as well, but you might. You might have read across this one this year in your Bible reading. 1 Chronicles 21, verse 1. First 
Chronicles 21 and verse 1 says, Now Satan stood up against Israel. So we see that Satan is actually opposing the entire nation of God's people. He stood up against Israel and he moved David to number Israel. If you go down on your page to verse 14, you'll see how it is that David gets punished. So Satan moves David to number Israel. Look at verse 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. And God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. And as he was destroying, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster and said to the angel who is destroying, it is enough, now refrain your hand. So we can see that Satan can move men to sin against God. He can move and tempt people to sin to the harm of the victim and to the hurt of those who are under the care as well. So what I want you to notice is, is not only was David uh, wrong for this sin, but David's being deceived by the sin also cost 70,000 lives of the nation because of his sin. Now just ponder on that for a moment. I believe it's easy for you and I to think little sin here or there maybe isn't that big of a deal. But Satan tricked David, moved on David's weakness to do this, and the cost to those under David's care were incredible. Satan's workings here, if we studied this all out, and, and we won't today, we will in the future, but Satan's work here against David and against Israel is entirely under God's sovereign control. That is, Satan is not allowed to do anything that God doesn't allow him to do. And that, that, that'll be evident when we do get to being able to study this entire passage If we looked at this same text in 2 Samuel 24, you don't even have to turn there. You can. You can make a note of it. 2 Samuel 24 says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David to do this. I wanted to show you these two passages because we can see in Chronicles, Satan stood up against Israel. In Samuel, we see that it is God that is angry with the nation. And, and when you put the two things together, God allows causes Satan to be turned loose on the nation of Israel. People like David or you who are deceived by Satan may repent after the fact. You may repent after the fact. David did. You can do that. Those injured by the sins of those who are deceived by Satan are many. Those injured, harmed, killed are many. And each man will give an account to God. Every man will be accountable to God for your sins, for the things that you have done sinfully. And this is why dying is not the worst thing that happens to a man. That is, those 70,000 people who died, that isn't the worst thing to happen to them. And this is where I believe many people err in your understanding of maybe natural disasters or your own tragedies in your life when, when you experience a death or something terrible happens to you or someone you love. Death isn't the worst thing that happens to a person. Why would I say that? Who's not going to die? We're, we're all going to die. Hebrews 9. It is appointed for men to die and then face the judgment, right? So those 70,000 people, I'm not saying we shouldn't be sad that they lost their lives and that they were killed in this plague that God sent on the nation, but that's not the worst thing in the world that happened to them. 
What is the worst thing in the world that could happen to them if they went through their lives ignoring the testimonies of God, if they went through their lives unwilling to hear and follow and meet God on the day of judgment and go into the rest of eternity in godless, dark misery? That's the worst thing that can happen in the world. That is the worst thing that can happen in the world. Satan loves to murder. He loves even more to take away from men the hope of Christ. He loves to take away from men the belief and the hope of Christ. But living by faith in God and the Savior despite the harms and the evils and the difficulties that may come upon us. That is your hope. That is man's great hope, is that we know the Savior. The next time we do this um, topic, we'll look at a few more examples like this throughout Scripture. But now I want to return to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 with you and ponder on on his devices or the device, if you will. We want to we want to ponder and think about Satan's device. Second Corinthians two one to eleven. See if we can get our minds around this just a little bit better. This speaks about an incident and and in 2 Corinthians, um, he doesn't really tell you what the incident is here. He, Since he had written to them about this problem in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians, everybody there already knows about what he's speaking about in, in 2 Corinthians here. So we're going to get to 2 Corinthians 2, 1 in a moment. Go to 1 Corinthians 5, and let me let me show you what this incident is, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, don't lose your place in 2 Corinthians there. I'm just going to read some scripture here. Paul says to the, the Christians in the city of Corinth, it's on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, is where Corinth is. He says, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, he writes in that letter. So there's some kind of sexual immorality taking place in the congregation, and it's come to his attention. He's writing to them, and he goes on to say, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. You guys up there in Corinth have something going on in your congregation that Gentiles don't even do. That's bad. Paul considers this a very immoral situation. He goes on to say that a man has his father's wife and you are puffed up or you're proud and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Paul's saying, I already have determined, I've already decided, I already know what, what's happened there is a sinful, immoral situation. I've already been able to determine that. I've already determined this. Verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh or for the harm of his, his, his living person that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. It, it appears the Christians in Corinth um, had such a, 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 a concept of... Um, how this couldn't be a, a bad thing, resulting in their glorying. Paul, Paul notes this, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that by you guys 
not rejecting this kind of sin, sinful activity in your congregation, don't you realize that this will embolden others to also practice sinful whatevers that they might do with, with no fear of God? If you guys won't address this scripturally, if you won't speak to this and deal with this, this is going to hurt your congregation. The same way that yeast in bread causes bread to expand, sin in the congregation that is not addressed causes more sin to increase. Verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. So you, Christian, get rid of this sin. Deal with this sin so that you can be fresh and sinless again. And he says, For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. The speaking about leaving and getting rid of the old leaving is part of the, the process of celebrating and practicing the yearly Passover. Each family would go through their homes and, and find any, any yeast in their homes and clean it out of their homes as a symbol of getting rid of sin in their home and in their lives. So Paul is teaching the congregation here in 1 Corinthians to discipline this person. Deliver such a one to Satan, he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Put him out of the congregation. Remove him from the congregation. And we won't go and look again this morning, but Matthew chapter 18, make a note for yourself here in Corinthians in particular, if you got your Bible open there, make a note that Matthew 18 teaches you, teaches I how it is we go through a process of first, when I know that there is a brother in sin or a sister in sin, we go and speak to them one-on-one and we speak about that. And, and if they repent, then you've won your brother Matthew 18 walks us through a process of how to methodically and carefully deal with a situation like this. The last step of which is to remove them from the congregation. And so the Corinthians are instructed that they need to deal with this. And if they don't, it'll embolden more to sin and it'll dishearten others as they see sin moving unchecked through their congregation. Now go down in the page with me to verse 11 and listen to how Paul keeps speaking about this. So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he continues speaking to the congregation. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. A Christian or I should say a person who calls himself a Christian and who practices these things. This is his warning. He says, don't fellowship with them like they're just one of you, like, like they're a Christian. This is the kind of person you shouldn't have something to do with. If they call themselves a Christian, but they live their lives like this, don't encourage their practice in it by your fellowshipping with them. Have nothing to do with them, he says. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Or in other words, none of us would do that with an unbeliever, with somebody who doesn't call himself a Christian. What do, I have, what do I have to do in this area of thinking with someone who isn't a Christian? But if someone who calls himself a Christian is acting in this way, you don't fellowship with them. He says, do you not judge those who are inside? Don't you have the common sensible Ability in the Lord Jesus to know that Christians speak and act and live in a, in a certain way? Can't you discern that? Isn't that an obvious thing to you, is, is what he's saying? Of course you guys are able to discern that. Of course you know that. Verse 13, But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. I want to make a note, turn to chapter 7. You're going to need to know where this is for yourselves personally, and I'll refer to it again here in a minute. Chapter 7 speaks about the difference between worldly repentance and godly repentance. 
It's a very important discernment for us to be able to make. Make a note that you'll find um, most of chapter 7 speaks about it, but 2 Corinthians 7.10, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Godly sorrow. There's another kind of sorrow, isn't there, for someone who's caught sinning? There's another kind of sorrow. It's called worldly sorrow. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it's speaking about godly sorrow leading to repentance. Worldly sorrow is, is sorry for getting caught. Worldly sorrow is embarrassed for itself. Worldly sorrow will keep doing what it's been doing until it gets caught. Godly sorrow fears how you have shamed God, how you have truly harmed and shamed the person maybe involved in the situation. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So just know that 2 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks about the difference between real repentance and false repentance. Those, those two things are not the same thing. Worldly repentance and godly repentance. So back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 now. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's, let's try to get it nailed down. We are not ignorant of Satan's devices. We want to really take a moment here and understand what it is he's talking about when we're thinking about Satan's devices. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. I determined this within myself. I would not come again to you in sorrow. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? If I made you feel sorry, it'll make me feel great. If I can make you feel comfortable again, if, if I can restore your comfort, if I can restore your joy, it'll, it'll make me happy again. Verse 3 says, And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came, when I came, I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy. I don't want to come and be upset with everybody. I ought to have joy having confidence in you that all my joy is in the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote you with many tears that you should be grieved. Now, follow with me. They should be grieved about what? About that thing we're reading about in 1 Corinthians. About the fact that this congregation has a man in their congregation who has had his father's wife. And they've ignored it, gloried in it in some way. And so he's saying, I wrote you about this in tears. I wrote to you in tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. His correction was given to them in love. His correction is given to them that they might be a pure and upright congregation. Verse 5, but if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. If that person who did the sin has caused grief, it hasn't caused me the grief. But in all of you in some way, it has caused you some grief. It's the meaning of his words. Not to be too severe. He says not, not to make what he has done too horribly, horribly, horribly bad. It was bad, but... Not, not too severe. Verse 6, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. What does that mean? That means when he wrote them in 1 Corinthians, when he wrote them and said, put him out. So this flesh might be destroyed by Satan, right? Put him out. So when we read verse 6, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. What does that mean? It means they did it and it's enough. Okay, go on with me. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Now, verse 6 and 7 leads us to understand that this person has responded in repentance. 
This person has responded rightly to the discipline that was put on them. We don't have uh, Corinthians letter 1.5. We don't, we don't have the description of how that took place. But we know Paul is saying, look, he's, he's been out long enough and now you ought to forgive and comfort him lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive for if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one, that guy, that man, for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So there's a couple of takeaways here. Let's think just for a moment, and this is where it's, it's likely you will come up with some observations, looking at this and pondering on this. What are Satan's devices that the Corinthians know? What are the thoughts and ways of Satan that the Corinthians know? And Paul wants them to avoid these. Paul wants those Christians to be careful in this situation. One, the church's elders might be too severe in unforgiveness. It's possible that this person has repented. He said he's sorry. There, there seems to be confidence that there has been a genuine repentance taking place. Why is Paul needing to write them and say, okay, restore him, bring him back in? Satan's device would be to play on those elders and have them be a little bit too severe. That's a possible thing that, that could happen here. Satan could hurt the church by moving either the Christians or the elders to be mean-spirited, to be unforgiving without compassion. Pride will often cause you to see men's weaknesses in such a way that you despise them instead of pity them. When you recognize somebody's sin or sinfulness, it shouldn't cause you to be proud. It shouldn't cause you to despise them. So when they seek forgiveness, when they look for repentance, we welcome them back in. Separation in a congregation when there has already been repentance, it hurts the church. If you insist on keeping that person separated when they've sought forgiveness and repentance, it hurts the church. It separates the Christians. It stirs up pride, and this is one of Satan's Sins. This is one of Satan's ways of, of leading you into sin, is appealing to your pride in some way or another. Don't let pride keep you from giving forgiveness when the repentant seeks it. You, you all remember, for example, a, a verse like this. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. In the Lord's Prayer, Christians are taught, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. You forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. I wanted to point out to you, make a note again, ponder on this. Christians can be guilty of being very soft on sin. And I, I don't want to encourage you to do that. I pointed you to the passage in, was it first or second Corinthians chapter 7, a second ago, right? It was first Corinthians, first Corinthians 7, I believe is what. Second oh, Corinthians 7, 10. Thank you. I want you to, Grow in your knowledge of and in your understanding of the difference between godly repentance and worldly repentance. You need to maintain a level of discernment when you're thinking about this. You need to be cautious about this. But when it is right and appropriate for you and I to give forgiveness and to restore somebody, it will be because a person has truly repented. Now another reason that 
or another device, if you will, of Satan's. We see in verses 6 and 7. When Christians won't forgive, it does hurt them. It causes them to assume a role that is not right, and it causes them to, to pridefully take a position that they shouldn't be taking, but it also hurts the person who should be welcomed back into the congregation. And what he says there in 6 and 7, he says, the punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient. Now look at verse 7, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So one of Satan's thoughts, one of his affections, one of his mental things about men is, is to cause someone to have too much sorrow. How, how would he cause that one to have too much sorrow? By causing the congregation to not be willing to take him back in. Now, putting him out is supposed to make him long to want to be back in the congregation. We learned that in Matthew 18. When you discipline this person, that separation is supposed to cause them to be pondering on this thing they've done against God and their congregation. It's supposed to cause them to long to be back in a fellowship. And when they come back seeking fellowship again through repentance, we bring them back in. Well, what we see there is Paul knows that if they insist on keeping him out and they won't restore him when he's been seeking repentance, it'll cause him a great degree of sorrow. And Satan would drive this one away from the love and the discipleship and the service of the church. So Satan's devices here in this passage, Satan's workings knows about pridefulness, knows about the potential for excessive loneliness and sorrow of the one who's being put on the congregation and, and Satan would be happy to do both of these things. Satan targets these things that he knows about men. Satan knows that probably every one of you to the man and woman, probably every single one of you are slow to say I'm sorry. Or to put it another way, will you forgive me? How many of you, like me, have a hard time opening your mouth and saying, I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me for the harsh things I said? for the way I have ignored my responsibility to do this or that, how many of you find it almost impossible to say, I'm sorry, forgive me? Satan knows this about you. He knows that it kills you to own the responsibility of your sin. You feel ashamed. You feel embarrassed. You feel slightly indignant because you're not like 100% wrong. They kind of deserve to hear or get what you gave them, right? It's like, well, if they didn't do this, then I wouldn't have done that. And so we kind of defend ourselves sometimes. Satan knows this. When you refuse to relent, when you refuse to say you're sorry, you're just taking some high self-righteous road and you're playing into Satan's devices. Don't do it. We need to really look at our own hearts before the Lord and we need to be quick to seek forgiveness and we need to be quick to give forgiveness. Don't let Satan take advantage of hardness of heart. The Lord Jesus offers forgiveness to you. He offers forgiveness to sinners who repent and seek forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the other lesson I think we, we really need to take away from this is each one of us needs to be quick to be able to seek forgiveness and we need to be quick to give forgiveness. 
The Lord will not refuse anyone who comes to him seeking forgiveness. You know, your coming to Christ for salvation involves your repenting from sin. Now, when, when you repent to the Lord Jesus of your sin, you say, yeah, Lord, I've done some bad things. I've made some mistakes. You kind of varnish over with a spray can, make a, polish them up a little bit. I'm really not that bad, Lord. I've done some bad things. Name them. List them off. Say, Lord, I'm guilty of sinful thoughts about this. I'm guilty of a greedy heart. I'm guilty of laziness. I'm guilty of free of um, fear of man. When, when, when you and I would come to the Lord and confess our sins honestly, honestly, this is part of how we would prepare our own souls to be quick to forgive someone who has sinned against us. Because when you're honest about your sin, you can be honest about receiving somebody else's seeking forgiveness. I really encourage you to be honest. John 6, 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. The Lord Jesus turns no one away who seeks him in repentance, who seeks him with sorrow over your sin. And he receives you and makes you sons and daughters. So we receive his forgiveness And we need it, and therefore we give forgiveness when it is sought. So in studying this little passage through these two letters, I think I've I think I've begun to peel off some of the layers of this so you can understand we are not ignorant of his devices. His devices to play on your pride. His device is to, to play on, on your great sorrow. You can have so much sorrow. You know, I can almost picture somebody. Let's say you guys disciplined me and you, you put me out of the church. And I'm out there in the world for a month or two. And I start getting madder and madder and more sorry and more sorry, even though I'm guilty. You'll just you'll start stewing on this thing. You'll start steaming and stewing, and pretty soon you hate everybody back in that church. They put me out. They embarrass me like that. They think they're better than me. And then this person drifts further and further and further and further away from the Lord, away from the congregation. Who does that hurt? Me. It hurts me. Satan loves it. He just peels him off of the flock. He takes him off of the herd. And they go away sad and hard and and resentful. Instead of what? What should they do instead? They should come back to the congregation and they should stand up here and they should say, you know what? You're right, I am a liar. I was lying to you guys about that thing. You're right, I I am a coveter. You're right, I am a thief. Your sins will keep you from your congregation. Your sins will keep you from the Lord until you come and confess them and repent them. And and this little tiny phrase in, in Corinthians shows us that Satan knows this. He knows how to get you off of the congregation. He knows how to how to offend you. He knows how to take you away from where you need to be. So I encourage you, if you've never repented of your sin, if you're hard-hearted, you don't care the Lord Jesus died on the cross for your sins, it's just time to repent. It's time for you to know who the Savior is. Time for you to know where we find eternal life. And you come to him and repent. And he turns away nobody who seeks him for salvation and forgiveness. Close with me in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. Lord, help us as we study your word.
Help us as we contemplate what it is that Satan might do to harm us, to hurt your congregation, Lord. Please help us to be humble and full of faith toward Christ. May no man or woman here be ashamed to confess their sin. Oh, Lord, help each one to be able to look the shamer in the face and confess our sins, Lord. Oh, how I pray you would help us. And I thank you for the forgiveness that is given to us in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. I just want to read you a benediction. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. I hope you guys have a great week. Hopefully we'll see you Wednesday.